0: You want to make your way back back toward your seats, and as you get settled in, if you've got a Bible or you've got a Bible on your phone, and you want to open it up to Acts chapters one and two. That's where we're going to spend uh, the the bulk of our time this morning. Uh, but before we get there, I kind of have two two different things that I want to do by way of introduction this morning. The first is. This is a good opportunity for us to take a step back and get the big picture of where we are in the narrative uh, of the Bible, which we've been walking our way through here in 2017. We started in January all the way back in Genesis, read the narrative portions of the Old Testament, then Luke and John and the Gospels. And now we're into what is the final uh, portion of the year. And if you've Been following along with us. The last booklet is is yellow. Uh, It's available for you to grab. That reading plan starts tomorrow. Uh, We're going to work from Acts through the epistles uh, and and through Revelation here up until the middle of December. And it's a good opportunity for us to take a step back and just say, where are we? Big picture within the narrative of the Bible. The Bible is one book made up of 66 individual books that tell one unified story, which is the story of God redeeming humanity from their sin. And God, unequivocally, start to finish, is the main character of that narrative. Different individuals kind of uh, rise into prominence, or they become central figures for small periods of time, but then they either die or they're... Uh, period of being used by God in a specific ministry uh, capacity or way diminishes, and so they fade back out. But God remains constant and the primary figure from beginning to end. He's the creator in the beginning of everything physical in the world around us. He is the creator of a people for himself, which begins uh, with Abraham and his family line, and that the seed of that family line is going to bring blessing to all the nations of all the earth. And now, Jesus Christ, we just saw in the Gospels, is the fulfillment of that. And by him, any person through faith in Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection can be brought into the family of God. And God is creating for himself a body of worshiping believers from every tribe, nation, and tongue. We've also seen that God is sustainer and provider, that he's a protector, a shepherd, and a guide. And one thing that we haven't really talked about but is equally as important is that God is the initiator of his sovereign will. God is the initiator of the completion of his sovereign will. If, in fact, God is sovereign, which just means that he is over all things, and the Bible makes it clear that he is, then he's also the means by which those things, his will, become completed. We've seen that all throughout Scripture. God initiates creation when he speaks and let there be light, and light springs into existence. Uh, He is the initiator of judgment for sin during the flood. He's the initiator of saving the Israelite people out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. He's the initiator of moving the people of Israel into the promised land. He initiates moving them out of the promised land as a judgment for their unfaithfulness to him. He's also the initiator that sends them back home during the return period of the Old Testament. He's the initiator of the birth of Christ, born of a woman named Mary, a virgin in a town named Bethlehem at a specific time uh, in the world's history. He's the initiator of Jesus's death and his resurrection, and God is going to initiate something new in the book of Acts that is incredibly, incredibly important, and that's the church. Specifically, he initiates the creation of the church via the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and that's what we're going to see this morning when we look at Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2, but it's important to kind of introduce a second thing here before we jump in, and that is uh, the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to look at in specific this morning. And so uh, at least a uh, surface-level understanding of the Trinity is necessary as we move into uh, our time in Acts 1 and 2 this morning. This is a, a, a theological truth that is can be difficult to grasp, so I'm, I'm going to try not to be overly dense here, but if you'll hang with me for a few minutes, these are important truths about who God is. Uh, God has eternally existed in three persons, Uh, since the very, very beginning. He eternally existed that way in the past. He will eternally exist that way in the future. All you have to do is read the Bible's uh, accounts of creation to understand that all three persons of the Trinity are present at creation. God the Father is creating in Genesis chapter 1, but the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, we're told. We're also told in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was God and was with God. Jesus, Son, Holy Spirit, Father, all present at creation. It is inaccurate to say or to think that when talking about the Trinity, that Jesus came into being when he was born. Or that the Holy Spirit comes into being when it's sent at Pentecost. They have eternally existed. The Son becomes manifest in human form when he's born. The Spirit is poured out in a powerful way on the church At Pentecost, but they've always existed. The second part to this, uh, some truths about the Trinity, is that each of the three persons is fully God, yet God is one. Does that make sense? Each individual person of the of the Trinity—Father, Son, Holy Spirit—is fully God, and yet God is altogether one being. The three persons of the Trinity are one in essence or in essential nature. They're one in purpose. They operate in perfect relationship and in perfect agreement and unity with one another. Wayne Grudem is a theologian who uh, I think offers some good clarification here. He says there are three distinct persons in the Trinity. And the being of each person is equal to the entire being of God. A way that we can help this make sense is to talk about what the Trinity isn't. It is not biblically accurate to say that there is one God with three modes or manifestations, that God is one being who kind of displays himself at different times in three different ways, as the Father, as the Son, as the Holy Spirit. That's not the case. That's called modalism. It's not true. God is one. In three distinct persons, not at certain times he's the Father, and at certain times he's the Son, and at certain times he's the Holy Spirit. All three have eternally existed. It's not biblically accurate to say that there is God the Father and then two lesser beings, Son and Holy Spirit. That's not accurate. They have eternally existed in complete unity and in complete relation and in perfect relational. Um, Relational relating, is that a phrase? And in in perfect relationship, that's what I'm after, with one another for all of eternity. Last one, it's also not true to say that there are three gods. That's pantheism. There's not God, one God that's the Father, one God that's the Holy Spirit, and one God that's the Son. That's not how that works. God has eternally existed in three persons, and each of those three persons are fully God, yet God is one entity in and of himself. Often, regrettably, when we talk about God, we're speaking about the Father. When we talk about Jesus, we talk with really great, great clarity about the Son, but we kind of forget about the Holy Spirit. Or maybe because we don't know enough about the Holy Spirit, we don't talk about Him. Some Sometimes I think that the... American church today exists as if the Holy Spirit is just some kind of like ethereal sort of feeling that operates out there. And we kind of throw things at the wall about what the Holy Spirit might be or how the Holy Spirit might work. And we hope that something sticks. And then we kind of run with that. But the Bible is actually very clear about who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit's role is, what kind of work the Holy Spirit does. And that's what we're going to look at here as we work through uh, the book of Acts. In fact, the book of Acts is going to make it unmistakably clear that the Holy Spirit is fully God and has specific work that the Holy Spirit has come to do. Here's kind of a big takeaway uh, from this morning's message, that by faith in the Son, you have access to an unhindered relationship with the Father and the unrivaled power of the Holy Spirit. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ in his life, death, resurrection as an atonement for sin and his ascension, that he's living and reigning up in heaven, that he provides hope for Uh, the future and eternity with God, if you've placed your faith in that, you have unhindered access to the Father because your sin has been forgiven. You have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You also have access to the unrivaled power of the Holy Spirit because when you place your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into you and that is the power of the fullness of God dwelling within a believer. Unhindered relationship with the Father, unrivaled, power of the Spirit. Both become available to you when you place your faith in the Son. As just one more big recap, kind of of where we are before we jump into Acts 1 and 2, we've used this over the course of the year. The Old Testament anticipates the coming of a Savior. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the manifestation of that. Here is the Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. Acts is the proclamation of that Savior. It is all about the historical truth that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, was crucified and resurrected. It was written by Luke, who's the author of the Gospel of Luke. He takes kind of a running start into the beginning of the book of Acts. Acts is going to chronicle for us the formation of the church, but it's going to chronicle something more than that for us. Acts is going to display the history of the Spirit-driven mission of the church. That's what's on display for us. In the book of Acts, Jesus has been talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, all throughout his ministry. In John 16, 17, he says, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. If you look down at the book of Acts there, sitting in your lap, the title of the book probably says the Acts of the Apostles. And while Acts certainly does chronicle the working of the 12 apostles after the ascension of Jesus Christ, it's more accurate to say that the book of Acts records the action of the Holy Spirit through willing believers. That's what the book of Acts chronicles for us. And what is that work? That work is the Great Commission go and make disciples of all nations. It is a God sized task that requires the work of God to complete. And as believers in Jesus Christ, that work is still going on today. We are the extension of what we see here in the book of Acts. Uh, So I'm going to read verses 1 to 11, and we'll kind of jump in here in chapter 1. It says this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them over 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, "'It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth.' And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, "'Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven?' This is Jesus, who is, or this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. This is the initiation. What are we waiting for? The book of Acts reads like a novel. It reads like an adventure story. And the inciting incident is the coming of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, they're waiting for it. Jesus says, I am leaving. I am going. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has planned for me to come and bring an absolute end and fulfillment to the coming kingdom of God, but in the intervening time, wait because the Holy Spirit is coming. And when the Holy Spirit arrives, you're going to have power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts is not just the history of the church, it's the history of the mission of the church. And that mission is rooted in Jesus. It's empowered by the spirit of Jesus. Michael Green, a commentator on Acts, says this, three crucial decades in world history, that is all it took. In the years between 33 and 64, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion the world has ever seen and to change the lives of millions of people. And the seedbed for all of this, the time when it took decisive root, was in these three decades. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women, and then the Spirit came. And that's the crucial part. It's not that there were... 12 men and a group of women who were so gifted and so talented and so capable that they became the catalyst by which the church grew explosively is that the Holy Spirit came. And the Holy Spirit was the catalyst by which the church grew explosively. What Acts records is the history of the Spirit-driven mission of the church. And that history is still playing out. And the charge is still the same to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of all nations, and its mode of completion is the same. Faithful women, faithful men being used by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the message of God's redeeming work through Jesus Christ. And the apostles, the disciples, are in a room together in Jerusalem just waiting for that to begin. In Acts uh, chapter 1, verses 12, down through the end of chapter 26, there's a, a brief account of the disciples trying to figure out who would replace Judas, who betrayed Jesus and then killed himself. Um, We're going to send out an article later this week via the transit that will kind of shed some light on these verses and how you can apply those in your own life. It's really good. It does a far better job than I could do in our time together this morning. So we'll push that out. If you're curious kind of about that section of Scripture, I encourage you to read that. I'm going to jump down to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And we're going to start seeing what the Holy Spirit's role is uh, in the world. Here we go. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, the Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt... And the parts of Libya belonging to, Cy- to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and, pro- and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying, they are filled with new wine. The first thing that we see here, the role of the Holy Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit empowers service. Empowers service. There are no spectators in the family of God. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, there are no believers biblically who sit on the sidelines and watch while the church mobilizes to bring the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. There are only participants. The Bible records nothing about a cultural Christian. The Bible records nothing about an unengaged Christian. What the Bible pictures are men and women who place their faith in Jesus Christ, are filled with the Holy Spirit and then empowered to serve. I want to make an important note here about Acts 2 in specific. What we see in the book of Acts is descriptive of what happened in the early church, but it is not prescriptive in that what you see in Acts always happens the same way. I say that because not every person who places their faith in Jesus Christ and then is filled or or sealed by the Holy Spirit Not every person is going to speak in tongues. Every person is going to be given certain spiritual gifts by which they can make clear the gospel message to other people, but that's not always going to be speaking in tongues. It's descriptive. The Holy Spirit comes powerfully, and then those believers are uniquely equipped to share the gospel with those that they come into contact with. And in that particular setting, it involves speaking in tongues. That is not always going to be the case. On the flip side... We should not think that what happens in the book of Acts is relegated to one period of history. Just because the Holy Spirit does these powerful workings in this early church history does not mean that he has stopped doing that. The Spirit can manifest itself powerfully in any number of ways through willing and obedient followers of Jesus Christ. The things, the powerful things we see that the Holy Spirit do in the book of Acts did not stop when the book of Acts was done being written. They still happen today. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are given certain spiritual gifts. Those gifts combine with the way God just naturally created you. All of your passions, all of your interests, all of your desires, your disposition. And when those two things come together, whatever your unique circumstances or situation look like, you are able to share the gospel in that place with those people in a way that nobody else is designed to do you have within you certain spiritual gifts. You have within you certain natural talents and abilities and passions and interests and dispositions. And the the Holy Spirit uses all of those to help you share the message of the gospel with those who are around you. The caveat being that none of that is about you. Whatever gifts you may have, whatever Passions you may have, whatever talents you might have, they are not given to you so that you can show the world how wonderful you are. They're given to you so that you can display to the world how great the gospel is. So that you can display to the world the glory of who God is. When the people see the outpouring of the Spirit on the disciples here, they are not wowed by the disciples. In fact, verse 13 tells us that they think the disciples are drunk. But what they are marveling at is the end of verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. When we rightly allow the Spirit to empower our service, people see through us to the gospel. When we rightly allow the Spirit to empower our service, we don't point to ourselves. We point to the glory of the Father in the work of the Son. A person filled with the Spirit may do any number of activities or be empowered by a variety of spiritual gifts, but all of those gifts and all of those activities should always magnify Jesus. That's why you get those spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit comes powerfully so that the disciples can communicate to what verse 5 tells us, our devout men from every nation under heaven, about the gospel. The Holy Spirit empowers our service. Peter stands up in this crowd in verses 14 down to 35, and he gives a sermon. It's actually one of the first recorded sermons after the the life of Jesus Christ. What he does is he walks through Scripture, and he shows them that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. And in verse 36, he sums it up this way. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 37. So those who received his word were baptized, and there there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Two things out of this passage. Number one, the Holy Spirit reveals truth. Peter gets done with this sermon. He says, let everybody know unmistakably with great clarity that Jesus Christ is the Savior. And we're told this, that they were cut to the heart. Something happens inside of them that causes the words of Peter to not just be heard, but to impact the hearts of those who heard it. And that is the work of the Spirit. As human beings who are marked by the presence of sin to our very core, we need the work of the Spirit to open our eyes to the reality of truth. We need that before we ever come to faith. It is the Holy Spirit's role in salvation to soften our hearts to the truth of the gospel, to awaken us to the reality of sin, to display for us the need for a Savior, and to make it clear to us that Jesus Christ is that Savior. We don't do that on our own. We're broken. We love the darkness more than we love the light. We need the Holy Spirit to show us truth, to display for us Truth, But we also need that as we walk with Jesus daily. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you need the revealing power of the Holy Spirit when you open Scripture. That we would open up the Bible and not just read it like we would read some, uh, some latest book or something. We open up the Bible and we say, Spirit, cut me to the heart with the truth of God's Word. We need it as we interpret truth in the events that take place in the world around us that we look at the world around us through the lens of Scripture, through the lens of the gospel. We need the Holy Spirit to make that possible for us. We need the Holy Spirit as we try to disciple our children, as we try to give, speak truth to co-workers or people that we're sharing the gospel with. We need that. It's possible that there's someone in your life that you've been sharing the gospel with faithfully for years and you feel like, gosh, probably a dozen times I've laid the gospel for them out clearly. I've used the bridge illustration. I've used the uh, four truths. I've used the circles that we learned a few months ago at the training here, but nothing seems to work. I tell them the gospel. They look at me like I'm speaking a foreign language. I don't get it. I don't think I can be more clear. And I would say, yeah, you probably can't. Maybe it's time to just back the truck up and spend every day praying that the spirit would reveal the truth of the gospel to that person's heart. You are not ever going to be the one who makes everything click for that person. That's a work of the spirit. And the other another work of the spirit is that the spirit brings life. The spirit brings physical life. He had that role in the act of creation. The spirit brings new life. When we receive the holy spirit after professing faith, look at what happens here in Uh, Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's the work of the Spirit, drawing people into life. The Holy Spirit brings fullness of life as it works with us in the process of sanctification. As we wrestle with sin and get molded into the image of Jesus, it is the Holy Spirit within us that convicts us of those things and walks us out of darkness into new life, walks us away from sin into the fullness of life that God has for us when we're following Him obediently. The Holy Spirit also seals us for eternal life with God, that you place your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, the Holy Spirit comes into you, and you are sealed for eternity, that you're going to spend all of... History, future, in perfect relationship with the Father, in perfect relationship with the Son, in perfect relationship with the Holy Spirit. You are sealed for eternal life with God. Also, before we move on to the last point here, don't miss the beauty of what happens here in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, there is a snippet of a picture of the fulfillment of the Great Commission, a snippet of a picture of what eternity is going to be like. Verse 5 tells us there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And then a bunch of those are listed in verses 9 and 10, and the first part of 11. And then at the end of verse 41, we're told that they were added that day 3,000 souls from the nations. The Holy Spirit brings life. And he wants to bring eternal life to members of every tribe, nation, and tongue. That is the picture. That is the commission that the disciples are given, that the apostles walk forward with empowered by the Spirit. And the Spirit begins that work clearly in Acts chapter 2. Last piece, verses 42 to 47. Listen to the way this piles up on itself. Maybe one of the most popular passages in all of Acts. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. piling up of the work of the Holy Spirit in creating unity. Most commonly, when you hear someone reference Acts 2, 42 to 47, they're probably disgruntled because the church they just left or the church they attend doesn't look like that. Well, my church isn't anything like Acts chapter 2, or "I'm, I'm Christian, but I don't go to church because the church isn't like what it was like in the book of Acts. You kind of hear that every once in a while Well, it is the spirit that brings this kind of unity. And the reason it's so compelling and the reason it's so beautiful is because it just isn't humanly possible. We're broken and sinful. And when we come into close relationship with one another, our relationships tend to look a lot more like Cain and Abel than they look like Acts chapter 2. They look a whole lot more filled with anger and jealousy and bitterness and sinfulness and discord and disunity than they look like what we see in Acts chapter 2 where there is this unbelievable commitment to being led by the Holy Spirit into a place of unity. It is the Holy Spirit's role to create unity within the church. Now, we have a part in that and that we should be partnering with the Holy Spirit in that act When there's reconciliation that's needed. We don't just sit down with someone and hope to have one good quality conversation and clear it all up. No, there's a process there. When relationships need to be restored, when someone on the church staff makes a decision that you don't like, the answer isn't that you just pack up and leave. It's that you sit down and say, let's see where the Spirit is leading and let's walk in unity toward that. And it's not just in one local body where that should be happening. I think that's the beauty of what we see in the book of Acts. It's not just that one local body should have unity. It's that the church globally should be in unity. And that can only happen by the Holy Spirit as we yield ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit. The reason it's so attractive is that it just isn't naturally humanly possible. It takes something so much greater. So much greater. By faith in the Son, you have access to an unhindered relationship with the Father and the unrivaled power of the Holy Spirit. When I was like 11 years old, uh, I went with my best friend to spend a few weeks over the summer with my grandparents who lived in southwestern Colorado. And so we, we got on a plane and we flew out there and they picked us up at the airport and we didn't drive straight uh, back to their house. Instead, they drove us to this national park that they thought would be a lot of fun for us to go and see. It's called the Great Sand Dunes National Park. Um, you are driving along a highway in southwestern Colorado, and there are mountains in the distance, and all of a sudden you come up on just towers of sand. It's, you, you really can't even conceive it. I encourage you to Google it later. There are massive sand dunes, and in front of, a, in front of them runs this stream of runoff snow. And so we get to this place and our grand, my grandparents get us out of the car and we get kind of situated near that little stream. And they say, okay, you guys can go kind of play on the sand dunes. And my, my best friend and I are convinced we're going to the top of these things. And there's this young guy. He's probably 24, 25. He's got a snowboard strapped to his back and he's going to the top. And so we think to ourselves, we'll follow him all the way up, and then he'll snowboard down, and we'll just bask in the glory of our own greatness up there. And so he begins to make his way up what is the first dune, and they're like layered on top of each other as you go back. The first one was maybe 20 feet tall. It took my friend and I 45 minutes to get 20 feet up. We're constantly slipping in the sand and sliding back down, and we finally make it up there, and we kind of pause to take a break, and My best friend, Ryan, he's way more of an optimist than I am. I look at him, and I say, Ryan, we're not going to make it. And he says, yeah, we're getting the hang of it. Like We're kind of figuring out how you walk in this stuff. I think we're going to be fine. We're going to be totally fine. So we go down a little bit, the back of that one, and then up, starting to work up the next one, which was probably another 30 or 40 feet tall. And we get about halfway up, and my friend kind of grabs me, and he looks at me, and he says, we're not going to make it. (laughs) And I said, uh you know, in my 11-year-old brain, you know what we really need right now is like an outpost or like a mini-mart with some snacks and some water, because I think if we refueled, we would be, we'd be good to go up the rest of this thing, and there's not any of that available, but we also knew that the snacks and the water were down with grandma and grandpa, and if we went back down, there was no chance we were trying again to come back up. And so we kind of stood there and bickered back and forth, and the guy with the snowboard looked like an ant, like hundreds of feet up from us already. And we ended up walking back down and just playing in the creek the rest of the time we were there. What we needed was some help. What we needed was like some hope in the midst of what felt like an insurmountable journey. You, live life alongside people every single day who feel like their just daily existence is an insurmountable journey and what they need is hope and the local church the global church is the hope of the world not because as an organization we're so talented or we're so great or we've got so many great answers but because we have the gospel and not only do we have the gospel, which is the greatest news that any individual has ever heard, but we also have the empowering of the Holy Spirit to work through us to point people to the gospel. The Holy Spirit who empowers our service, the Holy Spirit who brings or reveals the truth, who brings life, who creates unity. It's like an outpost in the middle of a dark and broken and oftentimes hopeless world for people who are searching for something to help them. That's what the church Is supposed to be, but that doesn't happen by human means. It happens through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has a number uh, of specific ways within some of those general categories that it acts and that it works and how it flows out of people. But in general, we see the Holy Spirit revealing truth to people. Oftentimes, you'll hear someone say that I was, you know, I was at this. Particular church, and there just wasn't room for the Holy Spirit. I want to say, well, is the Holy Spirit revealing truth from the Scriptures to you? Then the Holy Spirit's at work there. Is the Holy Spirit bringing life into people's lives who are dead in their sin? Then the Holy Spirit is at work there. Is the Holy Spirit empowering that church to serve? Then there's there's the presence of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit creating like a gospel-driven kind of unity freshness in the body? Then there's the evidence of the Holy Spirit. I pray as the pastor of this local congregation that we humble ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit in those ways. It would be a little bit easier to stand up here and give like, hey, here's a five-point sermon about how you can see greater service in your life or how you could have, you know, get more truth out of the Bible in your life. But the reality is not, you don't need five points. It's one point. Humble yourself to the work of the Holy Spirit through your life. He will reveal truth. He will empower your service. The Holy Spirit will bring unity in your relationships with Christians, brothers, and sisters. And the Holy Spirit will bring life. He'll bring you into the fullness of life. He'll bring life to those who need to see the gospel for the very first time. As a church, we're committed to seeing the Holy Spirit work in that way, both inside and through our congregation. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And we are going to uh, end our time together singing a few songs here. But the first one is called Holy Spirit. And the words are simple. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence, Lord. That should be our prayer as a church. That the glory of God would be what our hearts long for and that we would see it in the overwhelming presence of the Holy Spirit working in and